Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, we're going to be in Proverbs this morning. Um, if you don't have one and want to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs, we're going to be on page 541, page 541 in the Black Bibles. And we've been going through the series in Proverbs this summer to understand the concept of biblical wisdom. Proverbs is kind of the main centerpiece here. There's other wisdom books like the Psalms and the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, but here in Proverbs, we get kind of the main, the main meat of what, what wisdom looks like. And we're trying to understand this vision that God has for us, that we would grow up, that we would have a maturity to us where we have a weight and we have a, a substantialness to us. We have something to offer to other people. God wants us to be strong uh, so that we can glorify him and so that we can help others. So that's really the vision of biblical wisdom, that we would grow up into maturity. The vision of Psalm 1 says it's, it's like a tree with roots that go deep down to the water. It, it offers shade, it offers strength, it offers fruit to others. This morning we're going to apply this uh, understanding of wisdom to marriage. We're going to be looking at marriage this morning. Uh, reading from Proverbs 18.22 is kind of our launching verse for this. And I just want to say I understand uh, that this may be a hard topic for a lot of you. Um, for some of you, maybe you wish you were married, uh, or for some of you, you may be married and you wish you were not married. Um, for some of you, you, you know, maybe, maybe somewhere in between struggling in this area. And, and so I just want to encourage you that um, it's an important thing for us to understand, even if you are single, even if you don't see marriage on your horizon anytime soon, it's important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be pushing each other together into what God wants for his glory. Um, when I do a wedding, I tell people that you're not just an audience when you go to a wedding, and I would tell you this as well. You're, you're not just there as a spectator. You're there as witnesses of a covenant, and you're kind of saying, I'm a part of the, these people's community, and I'm going to help them have a marriage that honors God. So even if you're single, if you, even if you don't see any marriage in your horizon, it's, it's God's will that you would understand what marriage is supposed to look like so that you could help your brothers and sisters, uh, your friends, understand what that looks like and encourage them in that. So let's look at Proverbs 18.22. Good place to start. Nice, positive verse here. 541, uh, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a gift from God. And so uh, we're going to pray. We're going to ask him to teach us and help us understand what it's supposed to look like. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you created all things, and we trust, God, that you're in charge and you know what's best for us. And so I pray that you would help us to understand your will for us. God, for those of us that are struggling with what you've revealed about marriage, God, I just pray for an open mind. Um, just welcome those that are here this morning that aren't so sure about what your word has to say, and just, just pray that you would open minds, that you would help us to think and ponder what you have to say for us and be open to your graciousness and your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories that I found about uh, the beauty of, of a marriage as a, as a gift and as a blessing is a story that I read in a book called Each for the Other by Brian Chappell. He's one of my professors in seminary. And actually, I have a stack of books up here that I would recommend on marriage if y'all are looking for, for books or something to read on the subject. Um, I've got a commentary by Derek Kidner that I drew a lot of my insights today from, from Proverbs. And then I've got the other stack is just a stack of books about marriage specifically would recommend all of those to you. Uh, don't read them all at once, but you know you might pick one to buy uh, and check that out. 
But Brian Chapel tells a story of when he was pastoring in a small rural town. And if any of you have ever lived in a small town, you know what this is like. He said that in this town, the Walmart was the center of life, right? Uh, that it was kind of where everything happened. It was the social center. And, you know, no kind of social happening went on that was disconnected from the Walmart. Um, it was the, the hub of everything. And he talked about this older couple in his church named Florence and Bill And he said Bill was a retired carpenter, and he really liked to kind of putter around in his workshop, and he liked to go fishing and doing things like that. And so he didn't really spend as much time at the social center of life in this town. But his wife Florence really loved to be there, right? She really liked to talk to people. That's where she would go to see people. She'd see her friends there. She would hang out with people there. She might occasionally shop there too, I'm sure. Um, And so she loved to go there. But as this couple aged, she got to a point in her health where she wasn't able to drive, anymore. And I guess it was, you know, the spread out enough where she needed to drive to get there, but was no longer able to drive to get there and just really grieved over that loss. Uh, She started to feel really isolated. And if you've had friends or family members that are older that have gone through that, you know what that's like, this kind of feeling cut off from other people, socially disconnected. And she was really just grieving. And her husband, Bill, because he loved her, he, he noticed. Because he loved her, he saw her pain. And because he loved her, he made the sacrifice of of taking her and now driving her to this place that that he didn't necessarily want to be, right? He'd rather be on the lake fishing, but he knew that that brought her life, that she loved that that was encouraging to her, that she wanted to see her other friends. And so he would bring her then uh, to the Walmart, even in her old age when she couldn't go anymore herself. The author says that he even got to the point where he started bringing a little lawn chair so that she wouldn't you know, feel rushed, that she could take her time and speak with her friends. And he would just bring a little lawn chair and just kind of sit and park himself there while she chatted and, and saw people. And he became kind of a, a, a celebrity around there. I think all the other wives, you know, wished their husbands were more like Bill then, who was just smiling and just happy to be there with his wife as she enjoyed seeing other friends. I thought that was a beautiful picture of this couple deciding to be one. They had maybe different interests, Uh, But he sacrificially loved her and entered her world and did what he needed to do to bless her. And that's the picture of what marriage should be like. And one of the things that you see again and again in all the different scriptures about marriage is that marriage is really about two different people coming together and being one. And we see a unity in different areas when we look at the book of Proverbs. And the first thing that we see in the book of Proverbs is the idea of, of mission. That there should be a unified mission in marriage. And where we see that first is with child rearing. Just at the very beginning of Proverbs, if you flip back to chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, this isn't the only kind of mission in marriage, uh, but this is just the first hint of this that we get in Proverbs. So they have a unified mission in Proverbs. It says in verses 8 and 9, chapter 1, Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they're a garland, a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Hebrew poetry is built around parallelism, right? And so in, in English poetry, we really like rhyme and rhythm and things like that, right? But in Hebrew poetry, it's, a, it's an idea, right? It's a rhyming of ideas. It's a parallelism of concepts. And so they always have one concept, and then they repeat a parallel concept, another way of saying the same things which works out really well for us because we can enjoy the poetry of Hebrew poetry without 
having to understand the Hebrew itself, right? It can be easily translated into multiple languages. So what we see here is the rhyme is that the father's instruction is the same, is unified with the mother's instruction. They're unified in their mission of uh, inculcating wisdom, of feeding wisdom into their children. They speak with the same voice. And so from the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, we see a unity in marriage. We see that father and mother are one. Father and mother speak with the same voice. And I think it's really important to see this and to understand this. A lot of us misunderstand our mission. As I said, this is an example of a unified mission. This isn't the only kind of mission to have in marriage. Some marriages, God hasn't blessed you with children, right? Um, And God may have other specific missions for you. Some of you are not married. And I think the general principle here to understand is that there's a mission that we have outside of ourselves. One of the great problems that we have in our culture is that we understand marriage in a very inward way, right? We think it's all about us. And we don't really understand the external mission and call that God has put on our life. We have a purpose outside of ourselves. One of the great statements from Rick Warren's book, The, the 40 Days of, was it 40 Days of Purpose? How's it go? The Purpose Driven Life. That's it. That's the subtitle. I was getting the subtitle mixed up with the main title. So the the Purpose Driven Life, he talks about how it's not all about you, right? We've got to understand that the first step in growing up is is getting beyond ourselves, recognizing we have a mission outside of ourselves. A lot of us, we fall in love and we have the idea of, hey, this person makes me happy. Let's get together. But I have no idea where we're going, right? We we have no direction in our life. I, I grabbed the a little picture of, of directions online here to show you, to just give you an example of thinking about that. If you're going to type in directions, you type in, when you go to Google or MapQuest or whatever, you type in where you're starting, right? And you type in where you're going. Do you have any idea where you're going? Or do you just know where you're starting? For most of us as couples, we're just like, hey, she's cute. All right, let's get together. And that's it, right? We, we have no goal in mind. And, and God says we have to have a mission outside of ourselves. The last two weeks, we've tried to kind of hit the, the overall theme, the biblical mission that God gives us, the biblical purpose when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. So I just want to kind of go back to that and refresh uh, this for you. And this will give you an idea of where you're trying to go in marriage, and also it applies for single people. God has this calling for all of us that gives a direction that sets a course for you in your marriage, that it's, it's something outside of you. It's not just an inward black hole of, I just want to be happy, Right? And we fall in love with this fantasy from a romance novel or a chick flick about we're just going to be happy all the time, and that's what marriage is all about. No, no, God is calling you to, to do something. And marriage is about doing that together, right? There's a unity, you come together and you glorify God, and you're doing something outside of yourself. So I just want to remind you of what those missions are that are stated in the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, there's five, I think, that are really clear, that, that apply to all of us, whether you're married or not. The first one is just imaging God. The very beginning in Genesis 1, we saw this the last couple of weeks, God says we're created in his image. We are to glorify him. When people look at us, they should understand a little bit better how good God is. They should understand a little bit better how righteous God is. They should understand a little bit better how glorious God is. We should point to him as the moon reflects the light of the sun. We should reflect the glory of God. So we have this outside thing, outside of us that we are to be pointing to. And that is so important, again, in in marriage, but even in just living your life as a single person, we have to understand we have a purpose outside of ourselves, and we're pointing to that. The second thing that we need to understand is the whole idea of kingdom. God 
has a role for us, right? We're junior kings and queens of creation. The way it's worded in Genesis 1.26-28 is the idea of dominion, right? We're made to have dominion. And so we have interests in different areas. We have different gifts, right? Some people have dominion in, in creative areas. Some people have dominion in areas of, of the healing arts, right? Some, a lot of you may be in the military. Anybody here in the military? Maybe a couple? Okay, a couple of you may be in the military. Um, you may be a teacher, right? God gifts you in different ways. You have different interests, whether it's healing or teaching or soldiering or whatever it may be, organizing things, we are to have dominion. God God wants us to rule and reign. He wants us to do stuff. He wants us to build kingdoms. He just wants them to glorify Him, okay? So we are junior kings and queens of His creation. The third one is to understand the whole concept of garden, the whole concept of garden. God wants us to help things to thrive. God wants us to help things to grow, uh, the idea is in Genesis 2.15 where it says he put man in the garden to work it and to care for it, right? So the picture here, when you just, you just open up the book and you say, okay, where do we start? The picture here is that we're put in Eden and our job as humans is to spread paradise. Do you spread paradise? A, uh, a sad negative example of this is in the movie Chuck a lot. It's an old movie, I guess from the 90s maybe. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but it's this idea of of this religious legalistic man who's the mayor of the town who doesn't spread paradise, but he spreads fear and bitterness. And then he's contrasted with this pagan woman that brings in the chocolate shop and she spreads wonder and, and glory and, and life. And when you watch that movie, you should watch that movie with, with a grieving because you, you should recognize that often that's what religious people do. Often we are like the bad example. That's why they made the movie. It's not just an anti-Christian agenda that often movies have, but there's some truth to it. That often we bring pain and we don't bring life and wonder and, and growth and help things to thrive like this pagan character does in the movie. And so we need to recognize that's part of our calling. We're to create culture, we're to bring life, we're to encourage people, we're to bless people. Again, we do that differently according to our gifts. We all have different gifts, but we're to bring life. We're, we are to be, be a breath of fresh air. When we think about this idea, again, of kingdom and garden, we talked last week that the woman was put in the garden to be the helper, completer for the man. And so we see what we would articulate as a complementarian role. We don't go for either the extremes of patriarchalism that says men should suppress women. We don't go for the extreme of feminism that says there are no differences. But we would say, yes, there's differences in role, but equality before God. And so the woman is made to be a helper, completer, who is, who is very valuable. Again, we saw that last week. She's honored. She's needed. She's something that he can't do without, um, but he should be the servant leader and she should be the helper completer in their kingdom work and their gardening work. The fourth thing that I want to think about is the idea of rescue, right? We saw the serpent come in and we saw Adam fail in his job of rescue. He was supposed to chop the head off the snake, but he just let his wife chat and, and everything went downhill, right? He was supposed to step in. He was supposed to be the knight in shining armor, but he was just passive and he didn't do anything. So again, we, we are to join in this rescue mission that God has for us. God promised someday a son is going to come that's going to crush evil. And, and we celebrate that son as Jesus, the one who came to defeat evil once and for all. And he's the one that pushed back the darkness. And we're to be on his team, as it talks about in Matthew 28. We are to spread this good news that Jesus has defeated evil. He's set us free. He's forgiven us through his work on the cross. So we have, again, this mission that's outside of ourselves that we are to point people to him and the rescue that can be found only 
in him. And then the fifth one is just this idea of, of learning, that we all have a lot to learn, right? And we've seen that again and again in Proverbs. That's probably the biggest theme of Proverbs, that we need wisdom, that we need to grow up, that we need to be a people of the book. And so that's a big deal at our church. We're called Grace Bible Church. Um, sometimes it can even be a weakness, right, where all we do is that, right? We just do Bible study. We don't do anything else that the Bible tells us to do. We just study it, don't always apply it. But it's a really important thing. We should always keep it central that we would listen to what the book has to say and then not just study it, but apply it. It says in the Great Commission that we should teach others to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, not just teach them, right? It's not just abstract principles. I don't just lecture and say, here's ideas about who God is. But I say, this should transform your life. We should go out and live differently because of this. So we should be learners who grow up in biblical wisdom and apply that biblical wisdom. Well, the next thing I want us to understand, not only do we have a mission outside of ourselves, but marriage should also be about friendship. Marriage should be about friendship. And again, if you fall for kind of the myth of our culture, our culture is all about the passion and the romance, right? Our culture makes it seem like uh, marriage is all about waking up in the morning and your breath just naturally smelling good and your hair being fixed, right? Just that's the way you wake up in the sheets and everything's just cool and wonderful all the time. Just this kind of romantic fantasy. And sometimes it skips over the whole kind of hardcore friendship, walking side by side, that foundation that should be there in a marriage. So we miss the, the mission outside of ourselves and we also miss the the, the tough uh, faithfulness of friendship. God calls us to be faithful as friends, and that's another great theme in Proverbs. Proverbs teaches us often how to be good friends. One of the things that we see in Proverbs 2 is that unfaithfulness in marriage is the breaking of this companionship faithfulness. Um, it's not just the breaking of passion, but it's the breaking of the friendship. That's what's so hard uh, when there's a divorce, that's what's so hard when you feel betrayed is, is that should be your best friend and your best friend has deserted you. It says in Proverbs 2.17, it talks about the adulteress and it says she forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. This word companion is, is the strongest Hebrew word for friendship. It's this word aloof. And what's interesting, Derek Kidner, the, I referenced his commentary earlier, points out that Aloof is both the strongest word for friendship. It's this side-by-side faithfulness. You're in the trenches together, right? You're helping each other out. But it's also a word that's often used in negative context about it being something that can be betrayed and how horrible that is. So it's this very positive word that's often used in negative context because it is so awful when your faithful companion betrays you. So not just in the context of marriage, but even just a close friendship, a platonic friendship, when that's loss, that can be a heartbreaking thing. And Proverbs references that in Proverbs 16 and in Proverbs 17. It talks about how words can betray this kind of close companionship. It says in Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. So it's talking about this idea of gossip, a whisperer separating close friends. It says in Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So this idea is the contrast between uh, not forgiving someone and forgiving them. Covering, atoning for a sin versus repeating it and, and digging it back up. That, that would never happen in a marriage though, would it, right? We, we would never do that. We would never remember a fault from the past. It says in Proverbs 17, 9, that, that does damage to the relationship. You should put those past things 
behind you. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That applies to marriage. That applies to any friendship. This great scene. I just had to throw this in because I just saw this movie last week. Anybody seen the movie Driving Miss Daisy? Anybody seen that before? Older, older movie, so some of you, you know, probably came out uh, before you were born. But um, there's this great scene where, uh, where she's, she's uh, kind of losing her mind. It's basically this movie about this older uh, Jewish woman in the South. It's just real prickly, real hard to get along with, kind of real gruff. And this, this sweet African-American man that drives for her. And he just kind of just lavishes her with grace. He's just so kind and he's just so faithful And uh, she's just real rough, but by the end of it, after years and years together, she's kind of starting to break down. She's starting to lose her mind a little bit. He's still stable, and she reaches out and grabs his hand, and she says, Hoke, you're my only friend. You're my only friend. He's her true friend. And it just reminded me of this beautiful picture of friendship and how when we're watching this movie, because we're so over-romanced in our culture, there's part of you that's thinking, okay, when's the romance going to happen, right? When are they going to have this romantic relationship, you know, and they're 80 and 90 in the movie, and that, as if the friendship's not enough, you know? I mean, it's this, it's this beautiful foundation. It's this beautiful thing that they have, this real and genuine friendship. And, and every marriage should have a real friendship. That should be the foundation. Again, we skip right over it. We just, we don't have a, a mission. We don't really have a friendship. We just kind of like each other, Right? We just kind of dig each other, we fall in love, we're attracted, we get together, it's great, and then we realize, wait, I don't, I don't really like the same things as this person, or we don't really have a mission, we don't agree on where we're going. God calls us to align those things, to work at having a friendship. Friendship is something you have to, to work at. Again, the myth of our culture, the myth of our culture is that it's all just accidental, right? Just serendipity romance and friendship, they just happen, right? And if you have to work at it, it's not really a friendship. If you have to work at it, it's not really romance. And I, I would tell you that's a lie. That's not biblical. It's something you have to work at and you have to fight for. And my wife and I just this week celebrated 19 years, our anniversary. And uh, thank you. Some of you are thinking, how could that be if he's only 25? But, you know, we'll, I'll talk to you about the math later. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a really cool time. We got away for a little bit this week. It was just one of those wonderful, you know, you, you have these getaways. When you've been married 19 years, you've, you've had the getaways where they're like, yeah, okay, we did it, you know. And then we have other times when they're like, that was just awesome. Let's go there every year. You know, it was just wonderful. We went and stayed in a bed and breakfast. We ate at these wonderful restaurants. And just everything about it was romantic. It was beautiful. It was awesome. Uh, and then we came home, and my... my <laughs> My kids were sick, um, and then my wife and I got what they had, and now we're kind of sick, and, you know, and so things kind of shifted, and we kind of shifted very quickly from the passionate romantic mode back into the just, we're in the foxhole together, we're partners, we're companions, we're friends, right? You know, a lot of times when, when I think of a friend, what's a true friend? A true friend is someone who, who helps you move, right? A true friend is someone that, that is there for you in hard Times, and, and that's much of what marriage is. Uh, sometimes you're sick. Sometimes when we wake up in the morning, our breath doesn't smell good, right? I mean, it's just, sometimes it, it's just not all romantic and wonderful. And you, you, have to, you have to be in there for the hard times. You have to be faithful to each other. You have to build the friendship. You have to work at it. I, I have two uh, real specific pieces of advice I would give you for building friendship in your marriage. So, so men, husbands, 
serve your wife. This is, you like that one? <laughs> Yay! I love it when I get an amen. Her husband's not here, so she can do that, right? Um, she, didn't, she didn't elbow him or anything. Serve your wife. Ephesians 5 says that husbands should love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How, how did he love the church, guys? How did he love the church? Well, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we weren't, the church wasn't showing love for him first, and then he responded once they were worthy of his love. No, no, Christ initiated in love. Christ died for his church. Christ gave himself up for his church, and that's the kind of love that we should show. Uh, so read these marriage books. They're great. But guys, really, the best thing for you to understand is basic soteriology, right? That's going to help you love your wife. Soteriology is, is the big theology word for salvation. How does salvation work? We don't earn it. Jesus gives it to us. He initiates it. He's gracious. He comes after us. He dies for us. If you understand that, you'll begin to understand how to love your wife. So serve your wife. Initiate. Pursue her at, at your own sacrifice. And this is hard because we, I, I love to talk about this. We, we would love to take a bullet for our wife, but we don't want to take the trash out for our wife, right? And, and those are both sacrificing, right? Guys, it includes both things. Don't just wait for the glorious moment when you've got a cape. Uh, but, but sacrifice for your wife in the little things, in the small things as well. Serve her. Be her friend. Build friendship that way. Another great picture of this, Jesus died for us, uh, but Jesus also washed his disciples' feet, right? In John 13, that's this beautiful picture where he showed his disciples how to love each other. For this is so important for some churches. Some churches have made it into a sacrament, right? They make, we do communion and baptism. Other churches have added foot washing to that. I, I think that's, that's kind of cool, but I think really it should just be a, a paradigm for us that we should be serving each other in the hard things. So husbands, we're called to love our wives in that way. Not to sit back and wait until they're the perfect wife and then respond with romance, but we are to pursue them in friendship and in service. Now, wives, um, I've got some advice for you out of Titus 2, 3, and 4. Um, I've told you often, and if you're new here, you may not have heard this before, that nowhere in the New Testament are wives commanded to love their husbands. Y'all ever heard that before? Wives are not commanded to love their husbands. Husbands are commanded to love their wives, but wives are not commanded to love their husbands. Wives are commanded with words like honor and esteem and respect, and that's kind of the language of, of men, right? That's kind of the hua language that, that men speak a little bit more, and that, that's how they feel loved is if they feel respected and, and lifted up and, and honored. Um, but there is one verse that seems like it's saying that wives should love their husbands. So if you want to look at that, I can just tell you what it says. It's in Titus 2, 3, and 4. It says the older women of the church, in response to God's uh, initiating sacrificial love to us through Jesus, that the older women of the church should teach the younger women of the church to love their husbands and their children. But that's a different Greek word, right? We just have this one junk drawer word love in English. Uh, and so when I say that wives are, are nowhere commanded to love their husbands, I mean that agape word, unconditional love, is that common God's love for us word. But here in Titus where it says that uh, wives should love their husbands, it's phileo, which you may have heard of that word for brotherly love. So basically what Titus is saying is because of God's incredible sacrificial love for us, wives, you should like your husbands, okay? That that's the goal, okay? And it sounds silly, but that's huge. 
That's huge. I think it's another, it's another window into that, that language of honor and respect. That one of the best ways that you can build friendship with your husband is to like them. They really just want you to like them, ladies, okay? We, we just want you to think that we're cool, okay? And, and that's part of what we fell in love with when we were dating you. You just thought we were awesome. Uh, and then we were clipping our toenails in the bed one night and things, <laughs> things started to change, right? And, and so, so you're going to have to fight for this, right? You're going to have to press into this. You're going to have to fight to, to just like your husbands and your kids. And that's part of the call. That's part of the sacrificial call on wives. That's part of building that friendship. Well, all of this builds towards passion in marriage. This all builds towards passion. Again, I think our culture misunderstands this because we define marriage as passion instead of understanding that passion is this cherry on top, right? That we should be people coming together with a unified mission, a mission that's outside of ourselves, and we should be a people that are unified in friendship, that we care for each other, that we're in the trenches together, that we fight for each other, that we care for each other. That, that's what it looks like, right? You've got that mission together. You're going the same place together. You've you got a friendship together as well. You care for each other. You serve each other. You honor each other. And then passion comes after that. The, the biblical worldview is that uh, God came up with sexuality, that it was his idea. When you think about the biology of it, if you believe that God created us, um, there's some just scandalous detail that God went to to create our bodies to respond to each other. I won't go into detail here because I'm not a doctor and I probably messed some of that up, but, but God has created our bodies with intricate detail to respond to each other passionately in marriage. The biblical view is that marriage is this thing that God has created or uh, sexual intimacy is this thing that God has created to be enjoyed in marriage. And I think the best image of it is it's like a fire that needs to be guarded and protected in a safe fireplace. And so God doesn't say, don't enjoy the fire. God says, make sure you enjoy it the way I've designed it. I've designed it to work a certain way, and it's this powerful force that can burn out of control if, if you don't guard it properly. And so I want to appeal to you. I know we, we try to be a very welcoming place, and, and if you disagree with this view of, of how God's designed uh, sex and marriage, I want you to know that you're welcome here, and, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, our culture is in a lot of confusion right now, but I would just say the basic appeal is that God loves you. That's really the basic appeal, because if you really believe that God loves you, then it's okay, then it's safe to obey him. God doesn't really love you. It's not safe to obey him. It's the, then you have to obey your urges. Then your urges, your passions are always smarter than God. But if God really loves you, if he's really gracious, then temporarily foregoing an immediate passion for the sake of following God's commandments on marriage, that, that marriage is designed for a man and a woman for a lifetime of faithfulness, it, if you know that he loves you, then you can submit to his desires for you. Then you can trust that he knows what's best for you. And it's not always immediately pleasant. Sometimes immediately it's painful. It's hard to have self-control. It's, it's hard to be disciplined people. But it, it starts with the cross. It starts with who God is. It starts with understanding that God is a God that loves us. And if you can, if you can wrap your mind around that, then the other things will, will come into, into effect. I think too often the church has preached law instead of gospel. And so we really need to be careful as a church culture that as 
our culture continues to unravel, that we would say these are God's standards. But we would challenge people to obey God's standards based on their relationship with him of love. You don't just preach the law at people. Say, well, yeah, this is, this is God's best. These are God's standards. But God loves you. And if you understand that God loves you, then as a child, as his son, as his daughter, you'll desire to follow his law because you'll understand that it's for your best. It's, it's what he's done for you out of his grace to you. I have a picture here um, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And my apologies, because I believe that Adam and Eve were not redheaded Anglos, but that was just kind of the best picture I could find of them that wasn't, you know, at least they were covered, okay? So I was just trying to be, trying to be fair here. But one of the things that that points out, without being too explicit, is that in the, in the uh, Genesis accounts, we have this picture of Adam and Eve before sin came in, being naked and not ashamed. And I think that's just a basic picture of passion in marriage. That's a basic understanding of passion and marriage. And I think if you want to work on this in your marriage, it's helpful to understand that because of sin, uh, that's, that's broken that ability for us to be naked and unashamed. I think in different ways, generally, between men and women. I think for women, they tend to have a harder time being physically naked and unashamed. There is that question we talked about last week of, am I beautiful? And again, I want to answer that biblically, yes. Physically, you are beautiful. And God desires even more for you. God wants to go deeper than that, and God wants to give you a beauty of character as well. And for men, men struggle more with being emotionally naked, right? Being, being real, just letting their wives into what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago um, the, the brain damage that testosterone causes, and so there's some, there's some biological things there that, that are, you know, sometimes you ask a man what he's feeling, and he's just not sure, right? He just really doesn't know. So I just want to give you... Wives, let that be a little bumper there. He doesn't always know. He's not always fighting you. Sometimes he, he just doesn't know. Um, but also sometimes it's just threatening to us, right? As men, it's threatening to us. I remember when I was first married, my wife would ask me uh, what I was thinking. She would ask me that a lot. And that felt like a violation of my privacy, right? Um, I just thought, something's going on here. I don't know if I want to tell her what I'm thinking. You know, like I I don't always share everything that's in my head. It was just, it was really, it was a little too, too close. But, but if you want to work on passion in marriage, I would say those are, those are two areas to work on for, for men and for women, to work on those areas and understand that because of the fall, there's a shame that we have. And if we understand that Jesus, again, has pursued us in love, he's taken away our shame on the cross, that will enable us to, to loosen up and to share ourselves with each other more often and more deeply in marriage. Well, as we close, I just want to go back again to this concept in, uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, that marriage isn't, isn't something that's, uh, it's not that God comes after marriage and that God comes along and he sees us getting married and he says, hey, that's kind of a cool thing. I'm going to use that thing that you already have to tell people about me. But, it, but it's actually the reverse. God, God was there first. And God is perfect in his love. And he created us and he created marriage and he created passion and friendship and all of these things to reflect him, his love of us, that he pursues us. So I just want to bring you back there again because none of this will really make sense. None of this will really work unless you understand that there's a God out there 
that sees you as a sinner, that sees you as someone that's running away from him and trying to be your own God and kind of messing things up, and he loves you anyway. And he gave his son Jesus for you. And he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, to take your sins upon himself and to give you by faith Jesus' perfect righteousness. And if you begin to understand who God truly is as revealed through Jesus, then that will transform your own heart and transform your ability to love each other. Whether you're married or single, that will transform your ability to be able to love other people and not just think about yourself. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you do love us. And God, we pray that you'd help us to believe it, help us to walk in that truth, and help us to then glorify you with our lives, whether married or single. God, you tell us that if we're single, that there's all kinds of advantages. And so God, I pray for those that are here this morning that are struggling and and wish to be married, that you would encourage them that they can do great things for you, single. Pray for those that are struggling in their marriage, that you would give them healing and refreshment. And God, I pray for all of us, no matter what our, our role in life, that you'd help us to honor you with what we have because we recognize that you've loved us with everything that you have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.